0: Hi, I'm Jim Callaway.
1: and I'm Sharon Nelson. This is the 32nd edition of the Digital Edge, Lawyers and Technology.
0: Today, our topic is Surviving the Law Practice Shark Tank, the top six mistakes that can kill your practice.
1: We are very pleased to welcome as our guest, Narino Petro, an old friend of ours who is the practice management advisor for the State Bar of Wisconsin.
0: In addition to Narino's day job, he stays pretty busy passing along great information. He has the uh, CompuJuris blog, which is well known as a source of practice management and legal technology advice. He's a regular columnist in Law Practice Magazine, where his product watch column reviews lots of different products. And I noticed that this month, Narino, you also did an article for the June GP Solo Magazine, on mind mapping tools. So I have to also note that I'm a very invested in Narino's success with his job because I think I'm the first person who made the job opening information available to Narino. So we're very glad to have you with us today, Narino.
2: Well, good afternoon, Jim and Sharon, and it's a pleasure to be here. And yes, Jim, in fact, you do get to take that honor. I'm not sure if in the long run that's going to work out to be a good thing or a bad thing for some of us, but but so far it's working out well for me, and I'm really happy to be here.
1: Well, you've got to tell us, Noreno, about this title, because it was you who came up with the, the shark tank metaphor. What, what, where did that come from, and what does it mean?
2: It came from looking back when I started practicing law, and I worked, went to work for a small four-partner firm in Rockford, Illinois. In my introduction to the practice of law, being fresh out of law school, was I rode around with one of the four partners for two and a half days, and he did primarily collection work. And uh, on the morning of day four, he walked in with a banker's box of files, looked at me and said, here are the files you're doing McHenry County in an hour and a half. Good luck. (laughs) And so I managed to survive that ordeal. But I guess I look at it as that I learned how to practice law, much like being a goldfish thrown in a shark tank. And if I swam fast enough. I wouldn't be eaten. And I had a few bites taken out of me along the way, but I managed to swim fast enough. But really, I think that's the way a lot of attorneys are introduced to the practice of law. They're thrown into the deep end, and there are. There are other attorneys and a lot of pitfalls and everything. And they're sharks. And you can either be the diner or you can be the dinner. And that's where I come up with it.
0: That's pretty good, Dorito. I've noticed a recent publication by West for New Lawyers called Swimming Lessons for Baby Sharks, so I guess you're not the only one with that uh, <laughs> analogy. So what do you want to talk with us about today, and why is it important? Well,
2: as the title says, it's Surviving the Law Practice Shark Tank, but it's the top six mistakes that can up your practice. And I'm focusing on six mistakes that any lawyer can make that can seriously impact the law practice. I mean, if you just read your monthly bar journal, you can see written proof that the number of mistakes is only limited by the lawyers themselves.
1: (laughs) Also true. So so in your opinion, Noreno, what are the top six mistakes lawyers can make? Top of
2: the list, failure to communicate, lack of diligence, conflicts of interest. Then we move on to the more practice management-oriented ones, failing to get paid, Uh, failure to monitor your business and trust accounts, and last, failure to carefully screen your potential clients, also known as taking everything that comes in through the door.
0: Narino, how did you pick these six, and are there only six top mistakes?
2: Look, there are more than six. I'm sure all of us could come up with more than six. But in all honesty, you can only speak generally for about an hour when you do these presentations, so six is a nice number. This, these six are also, in talking to fellow practice management advisors such as you and others in the U.S. and Canada, and looking at issues that are rising on, like the ABA solo says, serve and in the journals for malpractice areas, these six seem to be those that are consistently – in the top ten. And so to avoid having to maybe hit some that may be applicable in one area and not another, these are the six that have a common thread through most practice areas throughout the United States.
1: Well let's take them in order, Narina. Uh, Mistakes one through three you call the malpractice trio, which has a nice musical lilt to it. What can you tell us about the malpractice trio?
2: Malpractice trio are the ones that consistently whether you're and remember i'm in i'm in wisconsin but i come from illinois but but the amazing thing is consistently at least in the midwest in illinois and wisconsin and minnesota and iowa and missouri these three are on an annual basis in the top ten areas of grievances filed with the disciplinary authorities year after year They're also the three that can be fixed by the correct application of technology. Now, the amazing thing is when we look at malpractice, I think NOLO Press probably says it best. They say generally malpractice occurs when a professional fails to provide the quality of the care that should reasonably be expected. And really what has to happen to show malpractice is you need to prove two things. To show that you were harmed as as a client. First, that your lawyer screwed up. And second, if the lawyer had done their job properly, you would have won your original case. I think that says it all. You screw up. Malpractice is when you screw up. And the reality is that we all are going to screw up at some point in time. So the idea is let's try to minimize the exposure for those risks that we can control and that we can limit the potential effects of if we use the tools that are at hand.
0: So, so what are the solutions to those three mistakes, Norina?
2: I'm a big believer in practice management systems. Practice management software used to be called case management software. Products like Time Matters or Amicus Attorney or Practice Master. I mean, the reality is that these three areas of grievances are three that actually can be prevented or minimized. By the proper use of technology. Now, if you're going to take that $3 million settlement you got from that personal injury suit and run off to Turks and Caicos, no amount of technology is going to help prevent that. But missing a statute of limitations or a filing deadline, absolutely. Practice management software can really work to help you avoid that. Failure to communicate. Modern practice management systems can tell you how long has it been since you last did anything on a specific file? How long has it been since you've sent an email message or sent a letter or spoken to the client? So basically, it's kind of like a malpractice watch. When when was the last time I touched this file? And maybe I should be checking files every 30 days, every 60 days, whatever date you want to set to say, okay, I haven't done anything on this file. I need to follow up. I need to communicate with my clients. One thing that surveys of clients have shown that while they may have received wonderful legal representation, they are extremely unhappy with their attorney's failure to return phone calls, failure to keep them updated on a regular basis, and failure to provide them with timely uh, and adequate information regarding their case. I, I I say put this in perspective, think about a doctor. You can get the best medical care in the world, but if that doctor has poor bedside manners, you are unhappy with the overall treatment. Now, if you look at this from the perspective of change the doctor to an attorney who does return phone calls, doesn't keep the client informed and up to date, so the bottom line is this. If you take a look at it and you change the doctor to a lawyer and you take the patient and make it a client. The client's not going to be any happier than that patient is if they don't feel that the bedside manner of the service provider was adequate. So that's one area. Lack of diligence, okay, failure to meet a statute of limitations, failure to hit a filing deadline, statutes of repose, all of these things can add up to being problems. Well, practice management software can help you set dates and multiple reminders, and you can even set up automated chains where it will automatically calculate days and give you multiple reminders and all of those things. So this is something that, once again, the technology can help with. And lastly, conflicts of interest. And we're not just talking about a conflict of interest where you're going into business with a client or something like that, uh, but we're also talking about uh, conflicts of interest that can come up with other parties that are associated with the matters with the proliferation of corporations and limited liability companies, and all their shareholders, directors, officers, members. These are all things there, but as well, in addition to representing two parties that have adverse interests, which we all think about when we hear conflict of interest, is this getting involved with a client, getting involved with parties that may be related to a client, that could be a problem, and once again... By keeping adequate information in a practice management system, because what it really is is a big database, it puts all of that information at your fingertips to easily be searched. And if you've got the information, you can find these things that, after the fact, could be a problem before they ever occur.
1: Your number four mistake is a failure to get get paid. Do you think this is really a very big issue?
2: I think this is a major issue. The bottom line is that, as Abraham Lincoln said, a lawyer's time and advice are his stock and trade, and your time is valuable, and in order for you to make your living, you have to bill your clients for your time and advice, and that's the only way you can do it. If you don't get paid, you can't pay your bills. You can't pay your staff. You can't put food on the table. And too often, lawyers overlook this simple fact or allow themselves to fall into the trap that maybe this isn't as important. There are other important things. And so then that's where the problem arises with this.
0: You take a somewhat controversial position for a bar association staff person in telling lawyers that they need to put profit before pro bono. What do you mean by that, and why do you think it is such an issue?
2: There are some places where I feel like I wear a target on my back with that (laughs) position. But here's the reality. Once again, this goes back to the fact that too often lawyers overlook the simple fact that in order to keep their doors open, to take care of their staff, and to stay in business, they have to bill. And sometimes they feel, no, before I do that, I have to provide services for those less fortunate without compensation. Well, first of all, while it is true that the rules of professional conduct urge each of us to provide pro bono publico services uh, you know, for the public good, there is nothing in those self-same rules that say you are not allowed to make a living. The bottom line is you need to get paid so you can pay your bills and keep your doors open and not have to worry about things, and then you're able to provide services for the public good. But if you're providing services for the public good and you're not bringing any income in, how do you continue to practice? So that's where I come in with that. I'm not saying don't do pro bono, but what I'm saying is you have to focus on the business, your business first, in order to allow you to be able to provide that pro bono service that the courts ask us to do.
1: You've told us, Narina, that you think that there are six steps that lawyers can take to help them avoid this mistake. Can you can you uh, kind of briefly tell us what they are? Sure.
2: Um, let's just run through them in order. The first thing you need to do is you need to discuss your fees at the initial consultation. You need to be up front with your client. It never ceases to amaze me that an attorney who is an absolutely ferocious courtroom opponent becomes meek and timid when sitting down from... Uh, across a table or a desk from a potential client and discussing what their fees are going to be. You need to do this up front. Tell them how you're going to bill, what about expenses, those kinds of things, any advance fees, how it's going to be applied against their bills. Do that up front. Number two, and this one just, we tell our clients as lawyers, you need to get it in writing. You need to have that agreement in writing, but we don't follow it ourselves in many circumstances have to use written fee agreements, okay? This is this is a best practice. Sometimes that phrase is overused, but bottom line is, you need to have a representation agreement for every client that comes through the door. Now, you may have one general agreement that somebody signs and you represent them on multiple matters, but you at least, need, at least need to establish the precedent, okay? Use that fee agreement to detail your billing practices, your fees, your expenses, how you expect to be paid, Right to withdraw, of course, subject to local rules for non-payment, things like that. Uh, Quite honestly, one consultant in the industry advises having the withdrawal for non-payment provision be in a separate paragraph in bold that the client has to initial to reinforce the client's obligations for, for making payments on time. Number three, okay, use written engagement letters. A little different than the fee agreement or the same. It can be combined, but basically your engagement letter is going to clearly define the scope of your representation. And what you want to do is specifically list what you will not do for the client as well as what you will do for the client. Okay, This is an opportunity for you to set out the obligations that you have and that the client have to each other and what the client can expect. The letter establishes the nature of the two-way relationship between lawyer and client. And what you often see is the engagement letter and the fee agreement are combined into one document. Four, use your bills as a regular status report. We we talked about failure to communicate being one of the top grievance areas filed with the disciplinary authorities. And if you send out a bill on a a monthly basis or other regular basis, you've got a terrific way to keep the client informed. Send them regularly, monthly or biweekly. Even if you're doing doing the work on a fixed or contingency fee basis, this lets the client see what actions you take on their behalf. Now, Use the bill as another tool to communicate with your clients. But look at your bills with a critical eye. This is this is something that drives clients crazy. I've seen it happen. You learn the hard way. But look at it as though you were the customers. For example, what makes more sense to you? TC with Attorney Smith RE depth scheduling or telephone call with Attorney Smith to discuss scheduling of his client's deposition. The one is cryptic. We all know what the the acronyms and everything stand for but the client doesn't necessarily understand it but if you spell it out and you tell them what they're doing one you're keeping the client informed two you're giving the client a written history of the work that you're performing on their behalf and you're doing it in language that they understand which keeps the happy the client happy and helps improve the client's desire to pay promptly five you absolutely have to stay on top of your accounts receivable you have to keep track of the status of your accounts on a regular basis Closely monitoring this information helps you to identify potential issues with clients, especially if they're not paying or slow paying, and to discuss with them if there are problems or potential unhappiness with your representation. If they're in a financial burden, you can enter into an arrangement that gets you some payment on a regular basis. If they're unhappy with something, this is an opportunity to try to figure out what that issue might be and A, either fix it, or B, look at ending the representation and moving away from this client. So you really, really need to do that because you don't want to work for a client if you're not going to get paid. I mean, if you're not going to get paid, you might as well go fishing. At least you'll enjoy it versus working for a client and not getting paid. Number six, the final one is don't nickel and dime your client, okay? Nothing irritates a client more than to feel they're being charged for every paper clip or every minor detail regarding their case. Go for significant legal work. But when it comes to expenses, rather than charging for every item of expense, such as actual telephone charges and the the cost of the fax telephone call in addition to the time spent drafting the fax, either build these charges into your hourly rate, assess an overhead charge when you open a case, or don't charge for any expense under a set dollar amount, say $10. Lastly, any work that you do for a client but don't charge them for should be shown on the bills as no charge. This may not, these may not sound like big things, but they can go a long way to keeping a client happy because if you're not charging them for something, it's a good thing to tell them, see, I'm not charging you every time you call me. There's no charge. The clients feel better about that. So those are the six things that I think you can do to help avoid this issue.
0: Next on your list is failing to monitor the business and trust bank accounts. How can that create a problem?
2: Oh, let me count the ways. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Getting paid is of no help if you don't watch what happens to that money after you receive it, okay? Especially when funds coming in are not your funds. They're, They're funds to be held in trust, and your fiduciary position as the attorney holding funds for your client or some other third party in your, your interest on lawyers' trust account, your IOLTA account, not only do you have the business reasons for safeguarding these funds, but as I said, you have ethical requirements under the rules of professional conduct. And they vary from state to state, with some being stricter than others. Florida and Wisconsin have some of the strictest trust account rules in the country, all estates impose some ethical obligations on attorneys to safeguard and protect these funds. And that means not only protecting the funds from dishonest staff, but dishonest attorneys as well. And I know that comes as a shock to some people, but there are a lot of dishonest folks out there in the world. And this doesn't just apply to a solo or a 3 lawyer office. This can also happen to the big offices as well, that people don't, Stay on top of their business accounts. Nobody's reviewing checks and looking at the reconciliations at the end of the month and who's getting paid. And they do the same thing with their IOLTA accounts. They don't look at it. When you don't do that, you let questionable transactions and mistakes transpire potentially, and they only are discovered oftentimes when it's too late to do anything about them. There are a number of examples. Uh, in the news that we see on a regular basis where people have taken money or staff have taken money. They've, one enterprising secretary would take the check, have her boss sign it, would then re- erase it, retype it to her husband's account. Then when it came back in after being canceled, she'd erase it again and type in the original party. Uh, so the links that they go to are really, really in- incredible. You have to look at these things. One case, for example, Attorney Charles J. Zuckerman of Maryland. And this is in the news. This is not anything being talked about out of school. Uh, in Maryland, he failed not once but twice to properly supervise paralegals that handle his trust accounts, resulting in the theft of over three hundred thousand dollars in trust funds. According to the story, he hired a new paralegal to clean up the mess from the prior paralegal who stole from his client trust account. But the new paralegal also turned out to be a thief and took more money than the first. So in all, they took more than $300,000. And at the end of the day, the attorney's like, well, I don't have time to check everything. And I just I just won't practice law anymore. This is one attorney. There's no reason you can't check that information. Rockford, Illinois, an attorney that I know had a secretary. She stole thousands of dollars from the lawyer's trust account. He wasn't paying attention. Then to add insult to injury. She married an attorney that shared office space with her former boss, and he really couldn't do anything about it.
1: So we've reached number six on your list, which you state is failing to carefully screen potential clients, or as you also call it, taking everything that walks through the door. As, as economic times are still pretty tough, doesn't it make sense for most lawyers to take whatever walks in the door?
2: First blush, it would seem to be the answer is yes. The problem is, and this is really, really true now when times are slow. The problem is that when you do that, you fail to be discerning about that client who you take on. Now, taking every client that walks through their door is only going to lead to frustration, discontent, and possible disciplinary action, in my opinion. When you take everything that walks through the door, you open yourself up to having to practice in areas that you may have little or no knowledge or experience in handling. Maybe somebody comes in with a divorce and you did one 10 years ago. Divorce law could have completely changed. Why do you want to open yourself up to those problems? The old adage was jack of all trades, master of none, is good for a smile but really has no place in the modern day legal practice, the law continues to become more complex, not less so. And so this has been my not only my experience, but the experience of, of other practice management advisors. Joanne Hathaway, who's the PMA of the State Bar of Michigan, will tell you that she's seen way too many attorneys dabble in, in a lot of different practice areas just to keep their practices profitable, or so they think. And in her opinion, and I have to agree with this, there's no way one can keep current in numerous practice areas and deliver top-notch legal services. So the result is often unhappy clients, grievances, and legal malpractice claims. The same thing can go for having too much work. If you're too busy and you continue to take on new clients, anybody that walks through the door, when do you have time to put in the necessary work to provide top-notch legal representation to the clients you've already made a commitment to. You end up trying to do too much without adequate staff or help resulting in poor work and or late work. And then this has the added effect of killing any good word of mouth advertising that you might have out there. And then, of course, there's the question of those clients that you determine, usually after the fact, that just aren't worth any any amount of fees to represent. Like I say, unfortunately, you usually figure this out after you've accepted them as a as a client.
0: Well thank you very much Narino, for appearing on this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. I,
1: I want to thank you too Nerino, and I got to tell you I hear from Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile all the time that when they listen to podcasts they listen to them at double speed they're not going to be able to do yours that way. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well thank you both for having me it was a pleasure.
1: That's all folks for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology.
0: Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon.
1: Happy trails, cowboy.